Good morning. First Corinthians chapter 10. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? The food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved.
Amen. Thank you, Ben. First Corinthians 10, battle plan for victory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that our hearts would be open to your word, that our minds alert, that we might be built up and equipped for everything you call us to, for every day. Lord, is that opportunity to worship you with obedience. Lord, convict us of sin. Lord, grant us repentance. Lord, I pray that we each one would take our responsibilities as warriors in the field so there would be many in heaven because we live for you. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We finished 1 Corinthians 9, doing all things for the sake of the gospel. And the last part Paul challenged us with in chapter 9 was the need for spiritual discipline. He said, run in such a way that you may win. If you're going to win in life, God, Jesus has already prepared the victory for us. But if we're going to win, we've got to run in such a way that we may win. On the battlefield, it's important that we understand the enemy and the dangers that are there, as well as the principles for victory, the basics, the fundamentals. Good coaches, when it comes to athletics, they emphasize the fundamentals every single day they practice. So that when it comes to the, uh, the, the time of competition, you're not thinking about the basics, you're just doing the basics. These are basics in the Christian life. Ephesians 6, Paul wrote, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes or literally the game plan of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We need to be equipped. What are the basics? How do we know when our, our captain is calling us or directing us or leading us? Well, we look often at Colossians 3, 15 and 16. The peace of God and the word of God. Let the peace of God rule and reign in your heart. Let the word of God dwell richly in your life. God never leads you to do something that's contrary to the word of God. And we've been over 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. We have received the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we speak, not a word taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Again, God gives us thoughts, but it's always the standard of the word of God. So we need to know the word and then we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit when he's leading us. First of all, verses one through 14, the danger of sin. We're all involved in this war. And if you belong to Jesus Christ in this life, you'll never get to the place in your life where you can handle sin. How many times I've dealt with young men and they're going great and all of a sudden they decide to go test the flesh to see if the flesh is strong now and they end up on their nose. And I tell them, like the old gospel song, the arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. You never get to the place in your Christian life where all of a sudden you can handle sin. Now, these folks here, and he uses the example of the Old Testament Jew, they had every privilege. Benjamin quoted 
I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. What was he talking about? They had the experience of the glory of God, his presence right there among them. Those people there were witness to God opening the Red Sea and God delivering them through it. And when he led them in the wilderness, it was a pillar of cloud by day and the glory of God and a pillar of fire by night. He was right there as a testimony. And he gave them spiritual food and spiritual water. What does that mean? Well, what they ate wasn't spiritual. It was real manna. And the water wasn't spiritual water. It was physical water, but was given by spiritual means. It was a miracle. Every day they woke up, there was on the ground, looked like frost, and they'd pick it up. They could make it into breads and it tastes like wafers and honey. And he said, you gather it six days a week. On the seventh day, you keep from the sixth day to the seventh because it's not going to happen on Sabbath. I want you to rest. So God provided for his people. And he said, actually, who that was is that was the second person of the Godhead, the son of God. Christ was following them through and keeping them safe and providing for them every step of the way in the wilderness. But privilege does not guarantee righteousness. You can grow up in a Christian home. You can go to Christian school. You can know a lot of Christian facts like the Pharisees and still not be righteous. It's not a matter of osmosis. In the Christian life, it's a matter of decision. It's what God is working in us, but it's our decision to be righteous. Paul writes in Romans 3.1, what advantage has the Jew or what benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. Because unto them first were given the oracles or the word of God. Nevertheless, with most of them, with all the advantage, they saw God work miraculously over and over and over again. They saw him discipline physically wicked people. The ground opened up and swallowed people. And yet, most of them died in the wilderness. They didn't make it into the promised land. How many made it? Two. Caleb and Joshua, two out of the millions that went in. Why? Because of sin. God wants us to take sin seriously in our life, to deal with it in our life. Not other people's sin. It's easy for other people's sin to bother you, isn't it? And we kind of get the idea, if those people would just grow up, life would be a lot easier for me. No, God wants us to hate our own sin. And to deal with it. Like Samuel dealt with Agag and hacked him to pieces before the Lord. Deal with sin. The psalmist said, search me and try me. See if there be some wicked way in me, Lord. Show me my blind sides. So that I can deal with it. And then we have 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, what does it mean to confess? It means identify with God about that. Now it says here that they were baptized under the cloud. What does that mean? They were identified with Moses. That's all it means. In the Bible, there are five different kinds of baptisms mentioned. The first was if you were from another country, you weren't Jewish, but you wanted to become a part of the people of God, you were taught in the law. If you were a man, you were circumcised, and then you were baptized. And that baptism signified identification with the people and the message of God. In the New Testament, there was the baptism of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist came preaching the message of repentance. 
He said, God's about done with this old thing. He's going to do a new thing. You need to come out, bring a testimony of repentance from your old ways and identify in baptism with a messenger of God. And so people came and they were baptized, identifying with the message of the kingdom, with what John was preaching. Then thirdly, there's the, mess, there's the baptism of Jesus. Remember, when Jesus came to be baptized, John said, whoa, I'm not worthy to unloose your sandal. You should be baptizing me. I shouldn't baptize you. But Jesus said, no, it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And he was baptized. What was Jesus doing? He was identifying with the message of John the Baptist. He didn't need to be washed from his sins, but he was identifying with that message of John that he was preaching. Then there's spirit baptism. That's when today, from, from that time forward, when Jesus, when you receive Jesus Christ, your savior, you are baptized into the body of Christ. Doesn't mean the body of Christ is poured on you. It means that he seals you. You are identified forever with the body of Jesus Christ, with his church. Then lastly, there is believer's baptism, and that's you being baptized to show that you are identified with the body of Christ. Five different kinds of baptism. So this baptism here he's speaking about that they were all a part of what God was doing. There were his protection, his provision, and yet they missed it. Now there's some warnings, four warnings, verses seven through 11. He said, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, people sat down to eat and stood up to play, Exodus 32, six. Remember what happened? God spoke the 10 commandments to his people. They were there, the whole nation listened to God speaking. Then they said, hey, Moses, tell God not to talk anymore because we're scared. You just go talk to him. But they heard it. No other graven images. You don't bow down to any graven image. And then the elders went up and they had a meal with God and they saw his feet and the floor of the throne room of God. And it says there, he didn't reach out and kill them. And then Moses went up in the mountain. Didn't even finish getting all of God's instruction. And God has to say to Moses, Moses, get back down there. They've already turned back to idolatry. You see, they saw the fire up there in the mountains. Well, surely he's been consumed. So I guess we better start over. Hey, uh, Aaron, why don't you make us a calf? What was the calf? Were they going to worship the God, the calf God? No, no. They're worshiping the God that brought them out of Egypt. They just wanted something physical. You know why? Because idolatry's in our heart as, as, as humans. We just have the desire to just have something physical to look at and kind of focus on. It's just in there. Part of the fall. And these people, they couldn't even, God is there. He can see his glory right there on the mountain. And Aaron, we need a God. And so Aaron takes a bunch of gold from them and he fashions this calf and overlays it with gold. And they begin to worship. And wrong worship always leads to wrong actions. Next thing you know, there's immorality. The idea of rising up to play means it was sexual immorality going on. Went from a wrong focus to wrong actions. And 3,000 of them died. How, how, what happened? God told Moses, you tell Aaron and his son, strap on their sword and just go, just wade in among them. And wherever there's I, that idolatry and that immorality going, you, you kill them. You kill them. 3,000 people died. God takes sin serious. 
You say, well, idolatry is not a problem for me because, you know, I don't bow down before an idol. A.W. Tozer says, idolatry includes much more than bowing down or burning incense to a physical image. Idolatry is having any false god, any object, object, idea, philosophy, habit, occupation, sport, or whatever that has one's primary concern and loyalty or that to any degree decreases one's trust in and loyalty to the Lord. That could be your job, right? One of our brothers came up afterwards and said, well, hold it, how do you, that's, that's a good question. How do you keep the balance then? I, mean, I gotta work all week long. Does that mean it's my God? No, no, no. God said, whatever you have in your hand, you do it hardly unto the Lord. But while you're working, you're always in an, an attitude of thanksgiving and you're always in communication with God. God, thank you for this job. But when it comes time for decision, and there will always be those decisions, right? Maybe you're threatened. If you stand true to the Lord, you might lose your job. What do you do? Is your job the one that provides for you or is God the one that provides for you? There will always be those decisions. Idolatry is whatever takes the place of God in your life. Could be good things. You have a believer running around and they try to justify, well, there's nothing wrong with this or that. And they try to prove it. As soon as you start saying that, it's probably taking Jesus' spot. As soon as you start to defend it, then it's probably an idol. Verse eight, nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. In Numbers chapter 25, remember when the prophet Baal came and he was hired by this fellow to curse the Jews. And every time he tried to curse them, a blessing would come out. And the king said, stop, you're blessing them again. Well, I can't, I can't curse them. So he said, I'll tell you what you do. I can't curse them, but what you can do is you just go down and take your daughters and your sons, and just start intermarrying with them. Next thing you know, they won't be any good because they'll all be idol worshipers like you are. And so they did that. And take too long, wrong focus, wrong actions, and some were so bold, one took his Midianite wife, or not his wife, his girlfriend, right in front of Moses and Aaron into his tent to have physical relations. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, saw it. He grabbed his spear and he went and pinned them together and killed them. And God killed 3,000 that day. God is serious about sin. So you, you really need to know, look at the Bible and see what God says is sin, right? That's serious. If God takes it serious, I ought to take it serious. Thirdly, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. What were they doing? Just complaining. You know, we get out of here, all we got is this manna to eat. Water, it's all we have. They're complaining. God said, all right, time for a tune-up. And he prepares... Something that's natural, a venomous serpent, just start biting them and they start dropping like flies. So Moses once again prays and said, Lord, Lord, don't kill them all. I'll tell you what you do. And we have the symbol today, even in our medical profession today of what Moses did. He said, God said, you take uh, some brass and you form it into a serpent and put it up on a pole. You ever seen that symbol of the Hippocratic Oath? The symbol for healing is a serpent on a pole. You look at a doctor's tab, sometimes they have those little buttons on. That's what's on there. And he said, everybody that looks at the serpent will be healed. And you say, well, what, what does looking at a serpent on a pole, a brass serpent, have to do 
with a snake bite. It's faith. And Jesus used that symbol in John 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus and he said, it's by faith. He said, just as a serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so the son of God one day will be lifted up on a cross. And when you trust in the son of God, you'll have healing in your soul. It's a symbol. And then verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did. What happened was there was a group of people in number 16 that began to complain about Moses and Aaron. And they said, you know, who died and made you the king? Moses bows down. He said, the Lord choose between you and me. I didn't choose this for myself. So the fellow named Abraham, not Abraham, but Abraham and Dothan and his ilk. And they said, Moses said, come on and we'll have a contest. Oh no, we're gonna come down and have our eyes put out. No, we're not doing that. No, you come down and have all your people that think you're called to be part of the priesthood and get their censors and they offer sense before the Lord. We'll see who God, who God chooses. So they get down there, all these false guys, and they start doing their thing. And he said, God, Moses said, we'll let, we'll let God choose. Then God tells Moses, you tell everybody to get away from their tents. And here's what I'm gonna do. And Moses said, here's how we'll decide who God's chosen to be a leader. If God doesn't sue something supernatural today, and swallow these people up, the earth's gonna open them and swallow them up, then, then God's not the king and I'm not his messenger. Can you imagine giving a message like that? Now God's gonna open the earth and swallow all you rebellious people up. Guess what happened? The earth opened up and swallowed all those people up. Now, you would think that everybody, everybody else goes screaming away, oh, God's gonna swallow us all up. The next day, they began to grumble. Hey, Moses did that, didn't he? Really? Moses just said, Moses did that? He said, but, you know, grumbling, that's just part of being a human. It's part of being a fallen human. Not to be a part of the Christian life. Just grumbling, complaining, and yet it comes so naturally, doesn't it? It's like breathing just to complain. Well, they begin to grumble and God sent the destroyer and 17,500 people, more than for immorality or adultery or the, the idolatry, 17,500 people died because God said, I've had enough. He's been to wipe them out. Once again, Moses came out, bowed, bowed down, said, oh, God, don't kill them all. And the destroyer was stopped. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the earth have come. See, that spirit of grumbling is just an unthankful spirit. Things aren't going the way I want them to go. So if I'll just grumble, I get enough people on my side, maybe we can get our way. That's not how we deal with things in the Christian life. What do we do? We go talk to people. We go talk to God. We allow God to say, maybe I just got a problem with my heart. But grumbling doesn't do anything but bring God's chastisement. We don't need that. God gives us a warning. The second danger, that's the danger of sin. The second danger, verses 14 through 20, is the danger of idolatry. He says, therefore, beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. He says, now the cup of blessing that we bless... Isn't that celebrating the fellowship, the communion we have with God? 
Well, yeah, it is. So how do you think you can commune with God and commune with demons at the same time? He goes on to say, what do I mean? That thing, the thing sacrificed to idol is anything or the idol is anything? No, but I say the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. We don't want to be in communion with demons. You see, these people are so puffed up in themselves. They said, well, we can handle that. It's just an idol. It's just a stone. No, you're sharing in demons. Exodus 20, verse 3, God made it very clearly. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. John MacArthur says this, when Christians worship anyone or anything besides God, that is idolatry. Worshiping the Virgin Mary, saints, icons, or angels is idolatry. No matter how sincerely they are meant to honor God, such practices are false worship and are strictly forbidden in the scripture. You're fellowshipping with demons. Now, there, there seems to be the, the, the Roman Catholic Church even has some commercials out there today. Come on home, come home. And we see even today, there are people who have never been Catholic. They're just, they're just drawn to it. Why? Well, the traditions and it's so beautiful. You know why they're drawn to it? Because that's in our flesh. That's in our flesh. We want to have something physical like that. Years ago, a fellow said to me, he, I don't know if he was a Christian or not, but he was one of these guys that was ever learning and he was, uh, he made a decision. He was baptized. He comes in one day and he was always thinking he's on the cutting edge. And he says, Paul, you know, I believe in the emanations of Mary. You know what that is? It's when supposedly one of the statues of Mary around the world, it bleeds or it cries or it does something. And I said, oh, I believe in that too. And he was shocked. Oh, you, oh, you believe too? I said, oh, absolutely. It's demons. Oh, why would you say it's demons? Because of what it produces. As soon as that, that statue does something supernatural, I see Satan's supernatural. He wants people blinded. What do they do? They start bringing food and flowers and offerings and they all bow down and they worship the idol. This demons. Oh, it's real. There are some believers that really get focused on demons and they just want to study it. It's so real. No, no, no. You just keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't get sucked into demons. Don't go, one of these guys think that you got to go around and fight demons all the time. You can't handle demons. Remember the sons of Sceva? And Acts, they thought they could throw some demons out. You know, they wanted to be like Paul. They probably thought they'd make some money. And so they were this uh, rabbi's kids. And so they go in there and they're going to throw these demons out. And the demons say, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but we don't know you. And they beat the snot out of them. Left. They went screaming from that place naked. Listen, you can't handle demons. The only way that we are protected is the blood of Jesus Christ and his life that's within us. We don't go looking for trouble. Bible, I think it's in Titus, talks about people that, that are, don't understand their place. And they go around calling demons names when Michael the archangel did not even dare bring a railing accusation against God, but he said, uh, against, against the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. When we get in fellowship with demons because we think we can handle something, we say, well, we, we, we can handle that. We'll just go along with the paganism. We need to remember that you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, verse 21. 
You cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Do you, do you provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are stronger than he, are we? No, we're not. And Hebrews 12 says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son he receives. That's serious. You don't want to get a scourging. But he goes on to say in Hebrews 12, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. And if you are without discipline of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you can go off and practice sin, if you can go off and play with the demons and be involved in false worship and act like, hey, I've really arrived now. I'm, I'm, I'm out here just worshiping the idols and it's okay. He said, if you don't receive any discipline, then you have something scary, scarier coming and that's eternal separation from God and damnation in the lake of fire. Because whom the Lord loves, he disciplines he wants our attention. Why? Because he wants to separate us from that which destroys. Thirdly, verses 23 through the end of the chapter, there's the danger of offense. Now we've dealt with that which is a danger to us, sin and demons. And now we want to deal with how our lives wrongly live could be a danger to somebody else. The danger of offending or being a stumbling block to someone. He says in verse 23, all things are lawful, but all things are not profitable. All things are lawful, but all things don't build up. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Now you might think, well, if I'm always thinking about somebody else, when do I get my time? When you get to heaven, you'll get plenty of your time in heaven. You see, that time you'll be able to handle it because your whole life will be about worship then. Say, but you know, I just, I don't have enough of me left. Well, when you run out of you, that's when you can start with God's grace and begin to minister his love and his grace to folks. But our focus is to be not how it pleases us. You know, Br'er Rabbit, you remember Br'er Rabbit? Uncle Remus said, I like what I like and I suits me. That's a lot of believers. No, no, no. We're to live our lives in service to other people because that's how we serve the king. In, in verses 25 through 30, we'd want to be offending weaker brothers. Secondly, we'd want to be offending unbelievers. And so basically Paul says, don't be self-righteous. Don't be priggish. You ever heard of that word before? Priggish, not piggish with an R. Priggish. The definition is self-righteously moralistic and superior, holier than thou, sanctimonious. How can a person be that way? Well, the Pharisees were like that. They're always running around trying to announce how holy they were. So Paul gives this instruction. Eat anything that's sold in the market without asking questions for conscience sake. You don't go to the market and say, oh, by the way, this is a good price on this. Is this offered to idols? What are you trying to do? You're trying to tell everybody, oh, I don't do that. I'm so much better than you because I don't eat meats offered to idols. There's so many ways for us to act priggish, sanctimonious. And Jesus hated that kind of an attitude. Listen, we're nothing without Christ. We're just sinners that are saved by grace, not by our own effort. 
but by the finished work of Jesus Christ. We just finished his work. So there's no place for us to come with a superior attitude about sinners, but how easy it is to stumble people. That's the first, oh, you think you're so good. They'll tell you that even when you're not acting that way. Oh, no, no, I'm, oh, no, no, I'm not good. There's only one good and that's God. But he said, when you're out there in the world, remember the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. So it's okay for you to eat it, but you don't have to advertise everything you do. Like you're so holy. And he says, if you're invited, an unbeliever invites you and you want to go over to his house and eat, eat anything that's said before you without asking any questions. But then if the unbeliever announces, oh, by the way, I made sure this was blessed and offered it to the idols, then you don't eat. Why? Well, you don't want to be sanctimonious on one hand. On the other hand, you want to be a stumbling block and let this guy think that, oh, well, he agrees that meat is better if it's been offered to idols too. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? And then verse 31, he gives us this amazing principle. This works in every area of life. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What a great principle. So hold it, hold it. Paul, come on, everything, yes, everything, everything. Just ask that question. The problem is we forget to ask the question. We forget to ask God. We just go charging off and the next thing you know, we don't have peace or we've caused somebody to stumble and all we had to do was stop and say, Lord, can I do this for your glory? Talk about your freedoms. Ask the Lord. Your liberties. Well, I can do this. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, then be willing to ask the Lord. Sometimes we're like the little kid. Say, did you ask the Lord about that? No. Why not? I know he's going to say. It's just like, did you ask your mom? No. She's just going to say no. Well, then you're in obedience. If you knew she's going to say no, and you thought you'd be okay by doing it without asking, you're still in disobedience, aren't you? Well, yeah, but won't have any fun. Really? It takes sin to have fun in life. That's the devil's lie. Life is about the joy of the Lord and having that peace that passes all understanding. So listen, you're going to hit the wall. You're going to be involved in a battle. Why not have the confidence, the full confidence of God, like the psalmist in Psalm 27 this morning, though they raise a host against me, though they bring a war against me, I have confidence. I have confidence. Verses 32 and 33, the conclusion. Give no offense to Jews, to Greeks, or the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Warren Wiersbe says, if a Christian lives to win souls, these questions about conduct will take care of themselves. It is the idle Christian the carnal Christian who frets over how far he can get involved with the world. When believers live to build the church and win the lost, they put first things first and glory in the name of Christ. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We're so thankful that you have given us these principles, these warnings, this instruction 
Lord, that we might be equipped to have, handle any battle you send our way. And like the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, we want to glory in the trials also because that's where you show yourself strong and that's where we're stretched for more capacity for the love of Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd apply these words to our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.